Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 18. Acts 18. The title of my message this morning is A Great Motivation for Missions. Before we look into the text, allow me to give a word of thanks to Faith Bible for the kindness generosity, and warmth that we have already felt among the believers for the few days that we have been with you. We want to lock shields with like-minded churches like this church today. We will not be here for just a couple days, but we will be here until the end of this week, and that is on purpose. We would like to be in the homes of as many of you as we can. To illustrate that, I'd like to talk about St. Andrew's 7 for a moment. This is the story of six students at St. Andrew's University in Scotland. These six students, along with the teacher that highly influenced them, built up missionary zeal in that university as a group of 18 and 19-year-olds that this missionary zeal spread throughout the nation of Scotland and throughout Europe. And those young men said that as they spent their days full of missionary zeal at that university in Scotland, they said that their favorite activity was earnest conversation. I would like to make a plea with the congregation here this morning that we would like to have earnest conversation with you this coming week. If you would like to have a meal with us, if you'd like to take a walk, if you'd like to take a hospital visit, if you'd just like to fellowship, we would like to know the believers here at Faith Bible. We have not come to Naples for a vacation. We have not come here to relax. We have not come here to catch the sights. We want to have earnest conversation and be in the homes of believers. So please come to us afterwards that we may have time fellowshipping, praying, and interacting with the dear believers here at Faith Bible. Before we look into the text in Acts 18, let me open with a word of prayer. Father God, blessed are you. You are the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, we pray that today we would be changed. We pray that the Word of God would reach deeply into our hearts and change us and shape us and fashion us into the image of your dear and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in His name. Amen. There is a mountain district in southern Greece known as Arcadia. In poetic fantasy, Arcadia was a place that represented a kind of paradise and utopia. And in the early 1920s in America, many people thought of 
the United States as the last Arcadia. With all of the hostility happening around the world, the U.S. was seen as somewhat innocent and exempt from this kind of evil. Then came the prohibition and organized crime and the horrors of World War I and World War II. And they were brought back to reality. Many missionaries today, before arriving on the foreign field, think of missions as a kind of Arcadia. Oh, we'll live in a poor land where the people will have their hands open, smiles on their faces, and and thank you cards ready for the wonderful gospel message that we have traveled so far to give. And of course, that is not at all what happens. In Acts 18, we will get a glimpse this morning of just how difficult the mission field was for the Apostle Paul and what it was that helped him to persevere. We're going to talk about the motivation today for the Apostle Paul and for you and I today. In Acts 18 verse 11, it says, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. What is it that caused Paul to stay in this place longer than almost any other village that he visited? What was it that motivated Paul and what will motivate Christians today to do the same thing? Today, we will learn that Christians are encouraged to persevere through difficulty because of the presence, the protection, and the promise of Jesus Christ. Now, before we look into Acts 18, I'd like to set up the context a little bit. So turn back one page to Acts 16. And in Acts 16, Paul is responding to the Macedonian call where a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And so he went to his first place in verse 11 of chapter 16, and he went to a town called Lydia, where, I'm sorry, a town called Philippi, where a lady called Lydia was converted. Now, interesting, Paul was probably only in this village for about three months, probably from August to October in A.D. 49, and after those three months, he left behind him a house church. Paul was always on the move. Paul's goal was not to be a fixed pastor at these church plants, but rather he was there to give the gospel, establish indigenous churches, and then go on his way. In fact, if we look at the end of Acts 16 and verse 40, it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, that was from Philippi, and when they had seen the brothers, probably those were the Christian brothers at the house church that he had planted, they encouraged them and departed. Now, if you were to go to the epistle of Philippians which was written 12 years later to the church in Philippi, this very church, you would find more details about these brothers in Christ. 
In fact, what is very interesting is that the church that Paul planted in Philippi, 12 years later, they were the church that were supporting the Apostle Paul in his missionary endeavors. That's the kind of indigenous churches that missionaries want to plant. Well, we move on to verse 16, and we see that a demonic spirit was cast out. Starting in verse 19, we see that Paul and Silas were beaten, and they were arrested, thrown in jail. Then beginning in verse 25, we, we find a miracle where they are miraculously released, and the jailer is converted. We come to chapter 17, and now Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, and what happens in Thessalonica is still what happens today. You have a decision to make about Jesus Christ, and there is no neutral ground. He gave the gospel in Thessalonica. Some people were gloriously converted, and on the other side, a riot broke out, and much persecution came. We come to chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. Paul and Silas are now in Berea, and they give the gospel to the Bereans, and they receive the word of God, but the enemies hear the word about this, and they thumb a ride to Berea, and it says in verse 13 that they agitated and stirred up the crowd so that Paul had to leave, and he left Silas and Timothy behind. He goes to Athens, beginning in verse 16, and he does the same thing, preaches the gospel this time in a very pagan setting. You may be tempted to think that Paul's ministry in Athens was not a success because the last verses of chapter 17 says they mocked him. And Paul says in verse 33 that he went out from their midst. But what is very interesting about this passage is that he was not unsuccessful. Did you know that very rarely does Luke, the writer of Acts, name more than one person who was converted, give their, their actual name, and here he gives two people that were converted. Dionysius, verse 34, and Damaris, gloriously converted. Well, now we have come to our passage in chapter 18, where Paul comes to a town called Corinth. About 200,000 people, about the size of Tallahassee. It had great wealth and extreme poverty and very little middle class. It was a dazzling display of Greek cities and flamboyant wealth. It was known for its love for sports and for idols. There was a, a temple for one of the gods there that was built on a 600-meter hill. And even many of the gods we know today, they worshipped like Apollo and Athena and Mercury and Jupiter. But perhaps what at Corinth was most known for was their deep and distressful love for sexual immorality. In fact, the word Corinth became a kind of byword for sexual immorality. This is who Paul is preaching to in this context. And yet, even with that difficulty, Paul had every reason in the beginning to be encouraged. First, he found camaraderie among like-minded brothers and sisters. We see this in verse 2. 
that he met Aquila and Priscilla. And there was camaraderie because they had the same vocation. You know how it is. You meet someone, maybe they're a Marine, just like you. They're a a homeschool mom, or or they're an Apple employee, or maybe they're a farmer, and there's that immediate camaraderie. Paul finds that with Priscilla and Aquila because, as verse 3 says, they had the same trade. Not only was there camaraderie, but there was culture. Because in verse 4 it says, in Paul's practice, he went to the synagogue every every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Paul was a Jew. And he was preaching to the Jews, as was his practice. Not only was there camaraderie and culture, but there was colleagues. Because in verse 5, Silas and Timothy have now come back. And so he's got people of the same trade, the same culture. He's got his friends back. And not only is there colleagues, but then we find that there are conversions. When I first left for the field... In 2006, one of my major prayer requests that I gave to the churches was that the Lord would give me three disciples. I desperately wanted three people to come to Christ early on so that I could disciple them. And the Lord answered that prayer, and it was so encouraging. We find the same thing here, that in verse 7 and 8, it says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul's got everything going on for him. Every reason to be encouraged. Camaraderie, culture, colleagues, conversions. And yet, we know that Paul was afraid and discouraged. How do we know that? Well, it says in verse 9 that the Lord came to him one night in a vision and he said, do not be afraid. You know, it's interesting that the scriptures do not come out overtly and state that Paul was afraid, and this is so often the case with pastors and missionaries. Very rarely do they come out explicitly with the discouragement and fear in their own hearts. But we know that Paul was fearful, and the reason is because of verse 6. It says they opposed and reviled him. That word reviled is the word blasphemeo, or blasphemy. It means to slander. It's the same word we find in Revelation 16 when it says that the judgment was poured out on the people and they blasphemed, they cursed, they reviled the name of Jesus Christ. It's the same word we find in Matthew 27 when Jesus was hanging on the cross crucified between two thieves And in verse 39, it says that those who passed by derided him. They reviled him. They blasphemed him. Here is a man being crucified, and it says they wagged their heads. I remember in Mozambique, on one occasion in a very rural village, the town was stoning a dog. The crowd was gathering around the dog for some reason and they were piling up stones and pummeling this dog that was squealing and they were laughing. And I remember in my own heart, my 
my heart going out to this animal. Compassion, pity going out to this animal. And beloved, it was a dog. But when the Son of Man was on the cross, it says that people came by and reviled Him. They, they blasphemed Him. This is what they are doing to Paul in verse 6. Picture it now. Paul, at night, afraid. It's midnight and all is quiet. Paul lies awake and he wants to leave. Afraid. Paul wonders if tomorrow will bring another day of whipping. And he's tired of the whipping. Afraid. Paul's heard of Spain and how much more fertile the soil is. Why stay here and pick in the soil as hard as granite? Afraid. Paul has led some to Christ that are open. The rest are hard. What's the point of staying? And then comes the vision. At the peak of Paul's despair, at the height of Paul's anguish, at the climax of Paul's despondency, Jesus comes and infuses hope into this apostle and 2,000 years later, He gives that same courage to every one of us. In this vision, Jesus says essentially, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Speak the truth. We love to sing the song, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory. Of Jesus and His love. Paul saying, I loathe to tell the story that brings my body pain. The scoffing of onlookers, the glances of disdain. Paul was human. He he had fears like you and I. Upon writing the the Corinthians in his first epistle, he said in chapter 2 and verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so when Jesus comes to him in a dream in verse 10, this is not some kind of cosmic pep talk. This is not Jesus working up Paul's emotions with a divine rah-rah speech to keep on going. No, Jesus will give him a basis for courage and perseverance. Why must he not fear? Why must you and I even today speak boldly? Well, we're going to find three reasons today. If you look at verse 10, notice it says, for. That's the first word. That's a, it's a conjunction. He's trying to give the basis, the ground why not be afraid? In 1956, there was a man named Vandenberg who wrote a book identifying 10 of the major motives of the missionary awaking in Great Britain in the 18th century. He gave reasons like politics, guilt, the romance of the mission field, God's glory, love, Jesus' command, eschatology, and so forth. The point here is not to talk about which one is best. The point here is to say that motives are important. 
It is vital that we have the right motives in what we do because wrong motives make single-term missionaries. I've seen many missionaries through the years quit because they had a romantic view of the mission field and romantic feelings wear off very quickly. Rarely is the foreign field like how we thought it would be. John Payton, when he went to the cannibals of the New Hebrides, was a very successful evangelist in Scotland before he left. And when everyone convinced him not to go, he went anyway with the right motives. But listen to what he wrote within minutes of arriving on that desolate land. Quote, My first impressions drove me to the verge of utter dismay. On beholding these natives in their paint and nakedness and misery, my heart was full of horror as of pity. Had I given up my much-beloved work and my dear people in Glasgow with so many delightful associations to consecrate my life to these degraded creatures? End quote. In other words, it took Peyton all of one minute for the second guessing to begin. And yet he gave his life to these islanders. Why? Because he had the right motives. Let's talk about the first motive. It is this, the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. Look at verse 10. For, here it is, I am with you. The first thing that fortified Paul in the midst of fear and prompted him to remain was the comforting presence of Jesus Christ. This is a common theme in Scripture. Joshua 1.5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And of course, the great commission in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you with you always. Now, it's important to understand what this promise of presence means. This is not the presence of location because we know that God is everywhere. It is not just the promise of the presence of location, but it is the presence of validation. When we are living right, When we are walking with the Spirit, God is with us in a special way that gives us courage. The righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man pursues. On one occasion when John Payton was on the island, he was running for his life from a group of cannibals for four years on Tana. He did this almost every day. And on one occasion, as he was running in the night, he climbed up into a tree and he could hear the cries of the savages below. Later on, as an old man, he wrote about that experience in that tree like this. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. 
Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence. That's what gives us courage. What motivated Paul? Jesus came to him in a vision and said, I am with you. Second, Not only the presence of Christ, but the protection of Christ. Again, verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Now, this is not a promise that we will never face harm or difficulty, as the prosperity gospel teaches today. In fact, There's a passage in Luke 21 that will help us to discover what this phrase means. If you go quickly over to Luke 21, because we find a similar idea. In Luke 21 and verse 18, it says, Jesus says, Not a hair of your head will perish. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Not a hair of our head will perish. But when we look at the context, it's not perhaps what we thought it was. Look at verse 12. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. What's happening here? Is there some kind of contradiction Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. What's happening here? The point here is that man is limited in how much he can harm God's people. We will face persecution. But in the broad sense, in the grand scheme, not a hair of ours will perish. In this particular scenario, God said, Paul, you won't be harmed in Corinth. And even for you and I, there is only so much that Satan can do to harm us. Because the very heads of our Uh, The hairs of our head are numbered. God is in control of our life and He is in control of our death. And as the great evangelist George Whitfield said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And while it is true that God has promised to guard and protect His children, He has only promised this within the framework of His own will. In the best-selling book, The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom tells the story while she was in Holland during the German invasion and she could not sleep that particular night and she was tossing and turning and she heard some bustling downstairs where her sister was preparing tea and so she went downstairs and spent the night talking to her sister as the planes were going overhead and dropping bombs on the buildings very nearby. 
And when she returned to her bed, she put her hand on the pillow and she felt something very sharp. And it was a jagged piece of metal 10 inches long that had come through the window and smashed right on her pillow where her head was. And her sister later said to her, there are no ifs in God's world. The center of His will is our safety. The center of God's will is the safest place to be. Well, not only the protection of Christ, but finally the promise of Christ. Look again at verse 10, because this may be the greatest of all motivations. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What does that mean? Well, this doesn't mean that there were lots of converts already in Paul's ministry, but rather it means that Christ had claimed by His order of decree of election that there would be a group of people in this city that would be converted. Faith and repentance was still needed, and yet they were His people. Let's turn over to John 10, 16 that explains this so well. Because this idea of God's sovereignty in salvation is among the greatest motivations for missionaries today. In John 10.16, it says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. David Livingston was one of the great missionaries in church history. And if you went to Westminster Abbey today and visited his grave, there etched in granite for all of history to see is a verse. Of the over 31,000 verses in the Bible, which would they choose to represent this missionary titan like David Livingston? Well, this very verse John 10, 16. Why? It's because the passage says that there are other sheep that are not of this fold. That is, the Jews were given the gospel, but there are those outside that have yet to hear the gospel. And yet, in a sense, they are still Christ's sheep. And not only are they a sheep, but they must come to the shepherd. We have this idea today that God really, really, really wants to save people and that's His will. And over here, man really, really, really doesn't want to be converted and those two wills collide. And in the end, God says, well, I tried. You know, I wanted to save them and I can do all things except this. I cannot overcome their stubborn will. And yet that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches here that they will listen to His voice. The sheep will follow. They will believe. They will trust. You say, so are we robots? God just forces us, kicking and screaming. The shepherd puts a a rope around the sheep's neck and drags him into the fold. No, no, the sheep come of their own accord, but that's because the shepherd has changed their 
will. He has made himself irresistibly beautiful. He has called them not by force, but by attraction. I have several little children, and there are times when we may go to a doctor's office, and as soon as we walk in, you see the eyes roll, and some grumpy men are perhaps looking, peering over their magazine, and they say, oh no, and they're grumpy with a frown on their face. And then one of my little children will get on the floor and start cackling and smiling. And almost irresistibly, the people in that office will start to smile. It's as though we can't help ourselves. But that is by attraction. And that's what Jesus Christ does with His sheep. There was a time when we hated the gospel and we hated the good news and Jesus Christ was ugly to us, but then He did something in our hearts and He changed our hearts so that we come to Him. We will come to Him. And when He wants to save His sheep, it will happen. And now we come to the passage back in Acts 18 and Jesus says the same thing to the Apostle Paul. And He says, I have many in this city who are my people. So how did Paul respond to this? Did Paul say, oh great, you have people in the city. I suppose I can just leave and do something else. No, the next verse says in verse 11 that he stayed a year and six months. In other words, I want to be a part of this process. Do you know what our responsibility is as Christians and missionaries and evangelists? It's not to save people. It's to give the gospel faithfully to every creature and it is Jesus' responsibility to save them. They had not yet done anything about being saved. Many of them had not even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were, in a sense, gods. Clearly, it is He who would bring them to salvation in due course. So why do I remain on the mission field today? Because I want to be a part of this. Because God has His people. The Lord has His sheep that He will save. And I want to be a part of the process of sharing Christ with every tongue and tribe and nation. What a motivation for missions. Well, how can this passage help us advance missions today? Let me close with some applications Number one, remind your family, flock, and friends that moving closer to God's will may be closer to danger as well. Do not discourage your people from going to dangerous places. I think of the story of a missionary named Getty. He was a missionary in Nova Scotia. He actually went to the New Hebrides before John Payton did. He was a successful pastor. No one would go to the mission field. And so he said, I'm going to go to the mission field. And they said, don't go. He said, I'm going. And I'm taking my little kids with me. And they said, don't take your little kids. It's too dangerous. At least you go and die. He said, I'm taking my little kids. Well, soon before he left, something happened and two of his little children died. 
Well, they got on a boat and went across the world to the New Hebrides. They were there on the island of cannibals for 15 years and nothing happened. Then after 15 years, they got on a ship. They had more children since then. They got on the boat of safety from the west to return home to visit. And while they were on the boat, another one of their children died. Now think about that. Three of their children died in what was considered the safest place. And their children were safest in the most dangerous place. Alone in that chestnut tree with bloodthirsty savages below was the safest place for John Payton to be. In the midst of attack and harm, God demanded that Paul stay. And if we are to make a dent in missions today, in the 1040 window where billions of Muslims live but so few missionaries go, it will take parents who pray blessing upon their children and grandchildren as they live halfway around the world in the midst of danger. It will take pastors who are willing to let go of the very best in their flock and send them to hard places where the name of Jesus Christ is not famous. Second, remind your missionaries, especially your discouraged missionaries, and there are more discouraged missionaries than you know, remind them to persevere in proclaiming the gospel in the midst of danger and hardship. Take that phrase in verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Take that phrase, wrap it up as a gift in words of love and distribute it to hurting missionaries around the world who want to quit. And tell them in emails and messages and letters and phone calls and in personal conversations, persevere, don't quit, keep preaching, God is with you. Finally, remind Christians, both here in Naples, Florida, both stateside and on the foreign field, that a robust confidence in the sovereignty of God in salvation is among the greatest motivations for missions. That God has His elect and that He has promised to save them, and that this does not kill evangelism, it fuels evangelism. This truth is what kept Adoniram Judson evangelizing in Burma when his wife and his next wife and his third wife died. It's what kept William Carey translating in India when all of his work was destroyed in a fire. It's what kept Elizabeth Elliot returning to Ecuador to the people who killed her husband. Beloved, promote the glorious teaching of Acts 18, 9, 10, 11, and watch in this church missionary zeal grow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that if there are those today who have never received Jesus Christ, 
I pray that they would run to the shepherd and believe this glorious message, the truth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement that he died on the cross for sinners and loves to save his sheep. Father, I pray today that those who are fearful of sharing the gospel in their own place here in the U.S. and perhaps ignoring a calling around the world, I pray that this passage would put steel in their spine and that you would call many to share the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully around the world. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.